I do want to talk this morning and for the next four weeks about spiritual rhythm in our lives. And I want to talk about spiritual rhythm as we start off 2013 and as we think about some of the rhythms that we put in our lives. It's a good time of the year to think about some of the habits, some of the things you have in your life that you're going to start or stop. And I like to, I like to look at that this year and this whole idea of rhythm, that there's a rhythm to our lives and specifically a rhythm to our spiritual lives that is there, whether we know it or not, and that we ought to pay attention to. Uh, there's uh, multiple rhythms, I guess, really going on. There's a kind of an annual spiritual rhythm in your life, right? We just came through one of those at Christmas time, right? This idea at Christmas time, we every December we remember the incarnation. We remember God coming to Earth. Uh, the, we remember God with us, Emmanuel, and all that God did. And so there's that 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 annual rhythm of life as we celebrate that. The poinsettias are in the church. Uh, and we celebrate by giving gifts to one another, recognizing God's gift to us. In the springtime, there's another annual rhythm. Uh, Good Friday, uh, resurrection, Easter Sunday, as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's another rhythm to our lives there. Um, and for some people, that's their only rhythm. Uh, Christmas and Easter, right? That's a, they wouldn't recognize the church if there isn't poinsettias and Easter lilies in the church. I can say that to you this morning because that's not you because you're here. Uh, those, we, we call those CEOs. We have a couple CEOs at Mount Hope. That's Christ Christmas and Easter only. We have a couple CEOs at the church and that's fine. We work to try and get them on a little more of a, a regular rhythm. Um, but, uh, but there's an annual rhythm. Then there's a monthly rhythm, right? There are certain things that take place on a monthly basis. One of them here at Mount Hope is uh, what you see here and what we'll do at the end of this service, celebrating communion together, gathering around the Lord's table um, and remembering the Lord's Supper, all those different terms for it. But we celebrate communion once a month here at Mount Hope. Now, that's not, uh, you know, we're not legalistic about that. Some, some churches celebrate it once a quarter. Some churches celebrate it every week. Some churches celebrate it every service that they're a part of. Uh, Jesus really didn't say how often to celebrate it. He just said that as often as you do it. So he just said do it, but he didn't necessarily say how often. So at Mount Hope, we want to make sure that we do that. And we have it on the first Sunday of every month as part of our monthly rhythm of worship. But there's a weekly rhythm as well, right? And we're here every Sunday. Uh, even when it snowed last week, we were here every Sunday. Some I, told, uh, some I heard from this morning said you watched us online. We have that weekly rhythm uh, that, uh, that we gather for worship, for uh, singing to God, for hearing from God's word, for encouragement to one another. And we have that as a weekly spiritual rhythm in our life. But there's also daily spiritual rhythms. And I kind of want to talk about that over the next four weeks. And I want to focus on the daily spiritual rhythm of our life. And the reason I want to focus in on the daily spiritual rhythm of our life is because the daily rhythm has more of an influence on your spiritual walk and my spiritual walk than any other rhythm. The daily spiritual rhythm of your life has more of an influence on my spiritual walk and your spiritual walk than any other rhythm of our life. It's like this in other aspects of our life, too. I was thinking about uh, some examples. You know, one example I was thinking about, you know, about every three weeks I get my hair cut. That's actually, if those of you that know me know that that's, that's not quite true. It's exactly every three weeks 
that I get my hair cut. Uh, and when I leave the stylist on that day, once every three weeks, I, I think I look pretty good. Uh, someone else may disagree, but I, you know, everything's in place. We've been, you know, cut and washed and styled and everything's great. Now, if I don't do anything for the next 20 days to my hair, I don't wash it, I don't comb it, I don't do anything to it. After a couple days, people in the office will start wondering what's going on. After about a week, someone might say something. After two weeks, people are just going to stop hanging around me maybe. I don't know. But there's a daily aspect that even though I have this regular three-week aspect, you know, and you may have it, maybe it's two weeks, maybe it's four weeks, maybe it's six weeks, whatever it is, but there's still a daily responsibility that we know has to take place to make the quarterly or regularly visits worthwhile. They have an impact on them, right? It's the same thing with meals. You know, you may have one, maybe you have one big meal a week, and, uh, and, and you know, you, you feast once a week, but you have to eat daily, you know? Or maybe you have a friend that you go out with them, and every time you go out, they get burgers and fries. And you think, how does this person stay in shape? Every time I'm with them, they eat burgers and fries. But you don't know what their regular diet is. It could be that's the only time they eat burgers and fries. It's not the one meal that makes the difference. It's the regular daily rhythm that makes the difference. It's a daily rhythm that makes the difference. Uh, one final example. I thought about perhaps if you were buying a used car. I don't know if you've ever done that. You're buying a used car. You go to the dealership, and there's two cars that look exactly alike. They have the same make, same model, same year, same color. Uh, you know, as far as you can tell, they're, 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 uh, they're the same, same car. And you say, well, you're a smart person. You've seen the car commercials. So you say, show me the Carfax. Dealer comes out, shows you the Carfax, and you find out neither car has ever been in an accident. And you say, what about the service records? Both cars have been serviced uh, every 3,000 miles. All the fluids changed, been serviced at the dealer. Both cars have been taken care of with the dealer and serviced in the same way. And the dealer says, well, there is one difference between these two cars. And uh, he says, this car was driven uh, by a teenager who was a pizza delivery man in the city of Boston and put 30,000 miles a year on the car. And he said, this other car was driven by a sweet little old lady who drove it back and forth to church a couple of times a week and put 3,000 miles a year on the car. Now which car do you want? The daily rhythm made a difference, even though the service was the same, even though annually, even though neither one had been an accident, but the daily rhythm of how each car was driven makes a difference, right? The daily rhythm in our spiritual lives, we may have yearly rhythms, we may have monthly, weekly uh, rhythms, but the daily one is the one that's going to have the most impact on our lives. And so this morning, what I want to look at is the rhythm of communion, and you may say, well, Pastor Rick, you just said that was a monthly rhythm. But what I really want to look at is how our daily lives have an effect on this monthly act of communion. In fact, the passage we're going to look at this morning, if you have your Bible, your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the passage we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul makes pretty clear that your daily rhythm can nullify one of the main purposes of what's supposed to take place 
during this monthly act that we have, or this, I'll just call it a regular act, because some people, like I said, it's different schedules, it doesn't have to be monthly, but your, how your daily rhythm and my daily rhythm can actually nullify one of the purposes of this regular act of communion and receiving the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to begin in verse 23, and it'll sound very familiar to you. I read it every communion service. I'll read it this communion service at the end of this service when we gather around this table. It'll sound very familiar to you. Uh, we usually stop at the end of verse 26, and if you've never read through the book of Corinthians or never read through the Bible, you might be surprised at what follows it beginning in verse 27. It's a pretty stern warning. But let's look at the passage together. Verse 23 through 32 is what I'll read this morning. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. In this text, I think we can find two important truths about communion. Two important truths that we can get just by a cursory reading of the text. Two important truths that are clear when it comes to communion. And the first truth is this. The first truth is there are two purposes for gathering around this table on a regular basis. The first one is remembrance. Right? We remember. We gather to remember. We use that word a lot when we gather around this table. In fact, some churches I've been to, they'll have a wooden table... And in the very front of that table will often be carved the words in remembrance of me. It's very clear that one of the purposes of communion is to remember Jesus, to remember his sacrifice on the cross, to remember uh, the, the weight of our sins and the value that God placed upon us. So we remember. In Paul's day, the Corinthians, I think they did a good job remembering they remembered well. And I think for the most part, we do a pretty good job remembering. And we come to this table, and we know that's the purpose. In fact, there are some people who might miss a service, might miss a Sunday during the month, but they're not going if they're at Mount Hope. They don't want to miss the first Sunday of the month because they want that opportunity to remember Christ. It's an important point. It's something that, that is good for us to do. Meditate on the sacrifice of Christ. Remember. I think we do that pretty well. But there's a second purpose. I'm not sure if you caught it in the verses. The second purpose of communion, and it's in verse 26. Verse 26, Paul says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The second purpose of what we do when we gather around this table is proclamation. 
we gather around this table, what we are proclaiming is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and everything that it accomplished. It's the entire gospel message. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus has done, and this is what he can do for you. He has made a way to the Father through his sacrifice. He has made a way for your sins to be forgiven. All of that's proclaimed through the communion. So those two purposes are accomplished in communion, and that's the first truth. The second truth is this. The second truth that's evident in this passage is that our actions have an incredible impact on the act of communion. Our actions have an incredible impact on the act of communion. In fact, our actions have the power to nullify one of the purposes of communion, and that being that second purpose of proclamation. See, Paul says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. I'll explain what that means in just a moment. But what Paul is saying is, look, you can come to this table and eat this piece of bread and drink this, drink this cup of juice, and not only is it not pleasing to God, uh, one translation uses the term, it's like profanity to God. The Revised Standard Version says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. So there's a way that we can take communion and it not be pleasing to God. And so what Paul is saying is, look, our actions have an effect on the act that we remember at this table. Let me give you an example of, of uh, uh, an analogy of what, how, how, how this happens. Think of three guys. So there's three, three husbands, three guys that are married. And each one of them gives their respective wives uh, candy and flowers. One husband does it every year on their anniversary. Like clockwork, never misses the day. Every anniversary, that wife knows candy and flowers are coming. No matter how many years they've been married, he has never missed it, never forgotten it, never missed the date, candy and flowers are coming. The second husband, he's a little more ambitious. Every month, on the date of their anniversary, he gives his wife candy and flowers. So they're married on the 19th, every 19th of the month, January through December. Candy and flowers come every single month on the date they were married. Now the third guy, he's really ambitious. Every day when he comes home from work, candy and flowers for his wife. You go to their house and it smells like a funeral home year round. <laughs> candy and flowers. I don't know what she does with the candy, but every day, candy and flowers for his wife, and he just, and, and he gives that to his wife every single day. So one guy once a year, one guy once a month, and, and another guy every day. There's one other thing these three guys have in common. All three of them have girlfriends and cheat on their wife. Does that make a difference? So, so their daily actions somehow have an impact on that regular act. And I think Paul is saying a similar thing when we come to this table of communion. That 
our daily actions of how we live impact the act of what we say we proclaim and celebrate at this table. They're not disconnected. They're not disconnected at all. See, what was going on? Let me tell you about the actions that were going on in the church at Corinth. Um, the actions that were going on was this. There were, there was, the church was newly formed, and so uh, what they would do is when they would have communion, it wouldn't be just a piece of bread and a cup of juice like we're going to have today. What they would have is a whole meal. They, they would gather, it would be like they would all eat together, it would be this meal whenever they'd gather, and they'd have communion, but they'd also have a meal together. But what would happen is there were some people in the congregation who the wealthier people, they didn't have to work as long a days if they had to work at all. So they could show up early to the service and good for them because they could show up early and have their choice of all the best foods. And what they would do is they would eat all the best foods. Not only would they eat all the best foods, they would eat all the food. And so when the poorer people, the most needy people, the people who needed it the most came at the end of their day, working a hard day, they came to the meal. Not only was the best food gone, but all the food was gone. And then what they would do is they would have their church service and they would celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper together. So you can imagine what that looked like, standing or sitting or kneeling or however they were at that time, postured shoulder to shoulder, one with a full stomach and content, the other with a growling stomach that uh, after a long, hard day of work was hungry. After the service, I imagine... Uh, there were some that were willing to stick around and shoot the breeze and talk and wonder why everyone was rushing off so quick. And there were others that all they could think of is when is this service going to be over so I can get home and get something to eat because I wasn't able to get anything to eat at church. And Paul says that he has no praise for them in this matter. You say, well, how do you know that all that's going on, Pastor Rick? Let's just look at the passage again. Back up to verse 20, chapter 11, verse 20. Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And so what, what, what Paul says is you are endeavoring to celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion, but what you are doing is you are profaning the Lord's Supper. You're polluting it. You're corrupting it. I don't have any praise for you in this. Gordon Fee, a commentator uh, on this passage, a scholar said this. I think he, he frames the whole issue rightly. He says, it seems certain that their version of the meal is less than satisfactory right at this point. Probably not so much because they were not thinking on Christ properly or failing to be in right communion with him, but because by their abuse of one another, they were negating the very point of that death to create a new people for his name in which the old distinctions based on human fallenness no longer obtain. So they remembered Christ. They, they did what you and I did at this table. But what they didn't remember is that their actions towards one another pollute and proclaim and profane 
the very message that Christ died to promote. So that's why in the RSV, RSV, I like these verses because I think it puts it very clearly. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of God. So what's the difference between those who proclaim and those who profane? When we come to this table, what's the difference between those who proclaim rightly what Jesus has done and those who profane what is said to be accomplished through Jesus' life? What's the difference between those who proclaim and those who profane? Just two points, just before we close and gather around this table. This is what I think the difference is. First is this. Those who profane the death of Jesus think that their actions have little or no impact on the act of communion. Those who profane the act of communion, those who profane the death of Jesus think that their actions between communions, outside the church, have little or no impact on the act of communion. Uh, the, the most um, extreme example I could think of this, and really silly example I could think of this, but I think it, it, it brings the point across pretty clearly, is the old mobster movies. You ever watch one of those? Ever watch one of those mobster movies when, he, when, 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 the, when the boss, when the head guy, when the godfather goes into mass, goes into church, and then comes out and orders a hit on somebody? A, you know, it's a silly example, but a complete disconnect, right? The act that took place in the church, in that building, was totally separate from the actions that take place outside of that building. Sometimes in those movies, you see them, you know, they won't, you know, in the church, they have respect, but we can't talk about this in church. So they go out on the steps, and they have a smoke, and they talk about, you know, extorting people for money and abusing people, and, you know, a complete disconnect, and like I said, it's an extreme example, but I think it brings across the point of what sometimes happened, that we see this act of coming into this building, celebrating communion, disconnected from the actions of what happens between communion services. And Paul said they're not disconnected. The actions you have towards one another affect this in such a way that you can nullify what, we're trying, what you're trying to say at this table. That your actions towards one another can completely contradict What's trying to be proclaimed at this table? We may not be ordering a mob hit on someone. I don't know if any, I don't think anyone in this church is. You may not be doing that. But Jesus said, when you're angry at someone in your heart, it's like you're murdering that person in your heart. Jesus said that the anger in our heart is like that act of murdering someone. And so we may not be ordering a mob hit or something like that. We don't do that. But what about the argument you had in the car this morning with your spouse? What about the anger that your kids see and no one else sees? What about the disrespect that you show your spouse that only your children know about? What about the argument with your coworker this week or the belittling of a coworker or someone you work with or someone who works for you? What about the uh, anger that you feel towards someone in your neighborhood or the envy or the lust? 
What about those things in our lives? Those actions in our heart and those actions on a daily basis, which we might think are disconnected from this act of communion, but what Paul is saying is our actions on a daily basis have an effect on this act that we have on a regular basis. Those relationships in our lives, is this the kind of relationship with one another that Jesus died for is what Paul is saying. You know, this is how you relate to one another. You're abusing one another. You're not taking into each other account. Is this what Jesus died for? Is this the best Jesus can do? Is this the humility exhibited through Christ, the way you're treating one another? He said, because, you know, you're proclaiming how great Jesus is and what he's done, but if they look at the way you treat one another, they're going to say, who wants to be in that church? Who wants to follow that Jesus? It's just like it is outside the church. And so Paul says, I have no praise for you in this matter. You're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so those who profane the death of Jesus think that their actions have no impact on the act of communion. But secondly, those who proclaim the death of Jesus, those who proclaim it instead of profane it, those who proclaim the death of Jesus rightly recognize that their actions have a great act great impact on the act of communion. They rightly recognize that their actions have a great impact on the act of communion. The people of Corinth were simply following the thinking of their culture. They were simply following the model of the society outside the church. The rich always ate first. The poor always made do with less. That was how it was outside the church. And this just came inside the church, and it came naturally to them, and that's the way they lived, and they didn't see anything wrong with it. And Paul is saying, no, if you are going to proclaim Christ, then you need to see these inequities for what they are, and they should be broken down within the walls of the church because the death of Christ does that. What Paul is saying is, what it looks like outside the church ought not to be the way it looks like inside the church. The divisions, the discriminations, the things, the walls that exist between people outside the church may be acceptable to people outside the church, but when you take into account the life and the humility and the death and the resurrection of Christ, they cannot exist inside the church and say that you proclaim Christ. They cannot. And so those actions that you have towards one another impact the celebration and the act of communion. You know, it's easy, as I was look, thinking about applications for this passage to our life and to our world, it's easy to look at Paul's world and say, oh yeah, that's easy to see. I mean, the rich abusing the poor and stealing the food. And the, and I, I, I even saw some of you this morning shaking your head when you, when you heard that, you know, the poor have nothing to eat and they come into church. I mean, it's easy to see. That's wrong. Any of us would say that's wrong. It's easy to look back uh, in the history of our country and look at something like slavery based on race and, and say, you know, the churches should stand up, that, that, that what went on outside the churches should not go on inside the churches. That the divisions and discrimination based on race may be taking place outside the church, but inside the church it ought not be true for some churches that stood up and it wasn't true and unfortunately for other churches they didn't take a stand and it still took place in the church. But it's easy to look at another time and another people and say, oh yeah, this is what's wrong. 
I think what's hard, you know, we're, we're, we're like a fish in water. It's hard for the fish to know what water is. And it's hard for us to look at our own selves and say, what is it in our lives that we bring in from the outside community when we relate to one another? What is it that we have to be careful about? What is it that's present in our culture, and our society that ought not be true in the church? I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said that the 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. 11 o'clock on Sundays, the most segregated hour in America when the church is in session. I think we've done better in that area, but I think we've got work to do. It ought not be true. It ought not be true in the church. The church ought to have broken down those walls. And we think, well, we're past the race issue and discrimination issue in some ways. Well, I thought about this, and I, I thought about one uh, illustration that, that I see every summer, and it always fascinates me. Not fascinates me, but it just always catches my attention because it's so obvious, and it always surprises me. That's when I go to a baseball game at Fenway Park in the summer. And I only go to two or three a year. But almost every time I go, I, it's, it amazes me that this baseball park in the middle of the city, we don't even have our baseball park out in the suburbs like some cities. It's in the middle of the city, in urban, one of the largest cities in the United States of America. And I will inevitably, during that game, turn to my wife at some point, because I just can't help but notice it, and say, show me one non-white person in this audience. And if you're here and you're saying, now, Pastor Rick, you are exaggerating. I've been to baseball games, and, I, and, and, and I, I, I'm telling you, if you haven't looked, you then you don't notice but I have sat there in sections and looked at tens of thousands of people and you can find one, non, one there, one there, one there, one non-white person there, there. But there's not a lot. And it amazes me that in the middle of one of the largest cities, and I know, look, there's other reasons. That's not scientific. I understand that. Some people just don't like baseball. I understand that. And that's fine. I mean, I talked to a number of, uh, I've talked to a number of uh, African families from our church, and they don't like baseball. They don't understand baseball. They say we understand cricket. They try and get me into cricket. I don't understand cricket. <laughs> and, and that's fine. There are some people that just don't like baseball, some people that do. But to me, it's just, it's just startling that in the middle of an urban center in America that you can go to a large sporting event, and, you know, you look around, and you say it's a very homogenous group of people. And, and regardless of why that takes place outside the church, what Paul is saying is it cannot take place inside the church. Whatever takes place in the larger society should not, cannot, by the death of Christ, take place inside the church. Church needs to be a place because everyone might not like baseball, but I think we'd say that everyone needs Jesus. You may be from a different culture, a different language, different race than someone else. They may not like baseball. They may not like football. They may not like their sports. But they, we all need Jesus. And so we, those, those walls need to be broken down. I think another place that happens sometimes is I, I so, and maybe this one's just me, but I, sometimes I walk through the mall and I say, there are a lot of beautiful people in the mall. 
I looked through and I said, man, this beautiful man, beautiful woman. This, I'm like, where are all these beautiful people all the time? They just seem to congregate in the mall. I don't have this many beautiful friends. No offense, all present company excluded. <laughs> all present company excluded. I'm saying, where there's beautiful people in the mall. And sometimes, you know, but, but the church ought not to be one homogenous group of people. I was talking to somebody this week who was looking for a church in our area, and they were, they were checking out churches, and, and they made the comment to me. I went to this church, and I visited, and there were lots of very different people. They weren't even saying it in a negative way. They were just saying, wow, the audience was very diverse, and they weren't meaning race, but they meant socioeconomic need and everything, and I said, that's good. That's good. That may be a good church, because the church ought to be welcoming to all different groups of people. It's Tim Keller who said, when you go to a church, it's more like a hospital than an art museum. Right? Churches are places where sick people go. Art museums are places where healthy people go. People that think they don't need any help, they go to art museums. I mean, I like art museums, but you get the illustration. You ought to have people in need that come to churches. You ought not be surprised when they're there. That's part of the job of the church. So when we come to this act of communion, what I'm asking for in our rhythm of life, what I'm begging for is that we do not disconnect our daily actions from this act of communion. They have an effect. And Paul says if your daily actions towards one another aren't loving and aren't Christ-like, then when you come to this table, you're profaning the very message that you're intending to proclaim. I remember when I was down in Springfield, Missouri, I was attending a church there in college and Pastor John Wendell was preaching a sermon and he gave an illustration. He said he was driving one day and someone cut him off in traffic and he blurted out quickly, what an idiot! His son was in the back seat. His son said, Dad, would, would that guy still be an idiot if he went to your church? <laughs> Kids can be pretty convicting. But he recognized something, didn't he? Your actions inside this vehicle, Dad, have a connection to the act that we do in church every week. That our actions have a connection to the act of what we say we proclaim in Jesus and in his life, death, and resurrection. It's the idea this morning, the big idea, if you're taking notes, the best I can put it is this way. If the rhythm of our daily actions don't exemplify Christ, then the proclamation in our regular act of communion is lost. If the rhythm of our daily actions don't exemplify Christ, then the proclamation in our regular act of communion is lost. It's a rhythm of our daily actions. So just before we receive communion, let me give one more <clears throat> one more comment and really a warning because here's where I think the temptation comes in. What some of us will be tempted to do after a message like this and you think about as the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart and begins to convict you and me of things in our lives and actions that we just know weren't right maybe this past week or weren't right in our lives or there's relationships in our lives with people that we're not living right with, the temptation may be to just stop doing the act. 
The temptation may be to not receive communion today. And I know the temptation because I've had people say that to me. I've had people say, well, pastor, I didn't receive communion today, and here's why. I've had people say to me, pastor, I haven't taken communion in a number of months, and here's why. See, the temptation is when we recognize our actions are wrong to just stop doing the act so we're not a hypocrite. But here's why I think that is the opposite of what God wants for us. Because if we do that, what we are essentially saying is we're not worthy to receive communion. Which is true. We're not. We're not worthy to receive communion. But what we're also saying is I'll come back when I am worthy. Is I'll come back when I am worthy to receive it. And the why in that is you and I will never be worthy to receive what Christ has done for us. You and I will never earn it. We will never live good enough. We will never be good enough. We will never accumulate enough good actions to be worthy of what Jesus has done for us. And so the solution is not to stop doing the act. The solution is to change the actions. The solution is to change our actions. Look at verse 33 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says this. Paul concludes this section with these words. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. What Paul doesn't say is stop taking communion. What Paul doesn't say is stop celebrating the Lord's Supper. What Paul doesn't say is stop the act. What he does say is change your actions. Change your actions. Change the way you're living and continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. See, there are some people who will not take part in the act of communion, but they have actions that are loving towards one another, and for them, many times, their faith is in their actions. And they think, man, my actions have got to count for something with God. For other people, their actions, they don't think really matter, but they come and they make sure that they take communion on a regular basis. Maybe it's monthly. Sometimes they try and find it uh, on a weekly basis, sometimes more. And, And the point is that they take place in the act, and the faith is in the act, regardless of what their actions are. So who's right? Neither. The faith isn't in the actions and the faith isn't in the act. Our faith is to be in God alone. And we live lives of actions that are like Christ and we celebrate the act of communion out of faith in God and who he is and out of our belief that even though we are completely unworthy, that when we trust in Jesus, that our sins are forgiven that our life is cleansed, that even though we are far from perfect, that his sacrifice and his righteousness, when we put our trust in him, is accounted to us by God. And we are unworthy of that. We are unworthy of that. 
So when we come to this table this morning, I want us to remember that our actions matter. The actions between communion services. But I also want us to remember that at this table is forgiveness for the times when our actions have fallen short. At this table is forgiveness for the times when we haven't acted loving and godly and Christ-like towards one another. At this table is forgiveness for when our lives have profaned the message of God, when we should have proclaimed what Christ has done. As those who are going to help me to serve come, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and we'll pray just before we receive communion together. And I want to give you a couple moments right now in your chair, in your space, just you and the Lord, to examine your own heart and your own actions, to, to consider when your actions may not have lined up with Christ's desire for your life. To take a moment to examine your heart and to consider those times when we have fallen short and that our actions do impact our act of communion. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, as the Holy Spirit begins to speak and convict you, because I don't know. I don't know what it is with your life. I don't know the week you had. I don't know the relationships you have. I don't know the interactions you had. I don't know where you fell short. But God does, and I believe even now, His Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts. And you're remembering something that happened this past week or this past year, or maybe there's a person in your life that you just have not restored right relationship with, or maybe there's a prejudice or a discrimination or a racism that lives in your heart that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about now. Maybe there's an anger or a lust or an envy that God is speaking to you about now. I just invite you in this moment to confess that to God, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask his blood to cleanse you, to tell him what he already knows, that we fall short, that we fall short, and that we need his grace to cover us once again. And as we come to this table, that your heart will be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ and that you will have repented and that as we go from this place in a few moments that we will live our lives differently. That our actions will be different because of who Christ is. Father, speak to us. Lead us. Cleanse us. Cleanse us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that we receive at this table. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Recognizing that we are so unworthy. And also recognizing the privilege of proclaiming what Jesus has done to this world. May we do that well in Jesus' name.